You know, during Jesus' ministry here on earth, there were a lot of different views about him, a lot of things about him that people believed. Some thought that he was John the Baptist. Some people thought that he was Elijah brought back to life. Some people thought that he was a reincarnated form of Jeremiah or one of the other great prophets. And one day, as Jesus' earthly life is coming to a close, he wants to make sure that his own disciples understand who he is because there's a lot of differing viewpoints on who he is. There's a lot of different theories floating around about his identity and who he is. So his closest followers are walking alongside him and, uh, and Jesus has this interaction with them. He wanted them to know that, uh, that these same people, if they didn't understand his true identity, they wouldn't be able to carry on his mission of, of proclaiming the good news to the world, that the Messiah, that God had promised, had come and brought forgiveness of sins and brought salvation to the world. And if these guys who are walking with him and, and serving alongside him and his disciples and his closest confidants didn't really wrap their heads around who he was, that the mission wouldn't go forward at the level it was supposed to. You want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, there's this interaction that happens. It's on page 567 if you use the Bible in front of you. That's where this interaction takes place, and uh, it's around chapter 13, I'm sorry, chapter 16, verse 13, and, uh, and I just want you to see this moment that Jesus questions his disciples about his identity and, uh, and what they say, and so uh, notice where they're at, Caesarea Philippi is where uh, Paul has actually been there before, he has, he has served there. Starting in verse 13 of chapter 16 of Matthew, says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Simon Peter speaks up. Now, this isn't uncommon for Peter to be the first one to speak. Peter seems to be the guy in the room who's not comfortable with silence. So yesterday we had men's group, and Eric led, and Eric is very good with silence. I'm terrible at it. Eric could sit for a full minute with nobody saying a word, and after about three seconds, I'm like, come on, somebody's got to say something. So in this instance, Jesus asks the question, I don't know how long the pause was, but Peter speaks into the pause and he answers the question correctly. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says something interesting to him. Verse starting verse 17, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's an interesting 
passage, and it's been misunderstood by lots of groups and people over the years, most notably how the Catholic Church interprets this. They interpret this as the moment that the papacy was was started because this is where Jesus is telling the followers that the church will be built upon Peter. So Peter becomes, in the Catholic Church's belief system, the first pope. And so every church that flows out of their belief system will flow out of and be led and governed by the papacy because of what they believe here. But that's not what's being said. Peter didn't replace Jesus. For that premise to be true, Jesus is being replaced by a man. And that cannot be true. Jesus is saying that Peter represents him Peter will be filled with the Spirit of God. And in the moment that you fast forward to Acts chapter 2, when Peter, filled with the Spirit, preaches a message and the church literally is birthed, it goes back to the prophetic words of Jesus in this moment. It was the mission of Peter. It was the mission of the disciples. It was our mission as well to take this good news out into the world, the whole world to tell the whole world that they can be saved from their sins. Maybe we've heard it so many times that it doesn't really sink in, but to a watching world at this point in human history, it is revolutionary to be able to make that claim. That forgiveness of sin is available and attainable to all of mankind. What I want us to see today is that the same thing I think Luke wants us to see in the book of Acts and the same thing Jesus wanted his disciples to see before he left them to carry on this mission by themselves. That this mission, even though it's difficult, even though it is scary, even though it it is just filled with trials, not always joys, not always rainbows and butterflies, but trials, it will never fail. It will never fail. The mission of God will never fail. It's a reminder that we are on the offensive side of the ball and we are taking the message of salvation and grace and the love of God into a watching and needy world and the defensive side of the ball is the gates of hell and they can't stop us. No matter what scheme is cooked up, this offense wins every time. There's always opposition, but we always win. And that's the story of the book of Acts. The story of the book of Acts is that Jesus asks this question of his followers, and that question gets answered in the first part of Acts, and then it gets reinforced through the whole story and narrative of Acts, is that that upon this rock... The rock of the indwelled Holy Spirit, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus also said other things. We've looked at it before. In this world, take heart. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have what? Overcome the world. Jesus makes these promises and these prophetic claims And that's been the story of the book of Acts as we've seen through all of these months in it. We've seen that the the story of the church 
is to advance the good news of, of Jesus. Jesus gets this started. It's sort of a singular moment, a singular message through a singular being, Jesus. And that's what Jesus means before he ascends and looks at the followers of Jesus. And he, as he says to his followers, it is better for you for me to leave. Do you imagine that? Could you imagine being in that moment, walking and living and serving alongside Jesus for these years? And now he's alive again. He rose from the dead. How could anything possibly be better than being with you in your physical presence in your manifested glory state? How could anything be better than that? That's, that's the question I pictured the followers of Jesus asking, rattling around in their brains and in their hearts as Jesus is saying that. And then all of a sudden, he's gone. Days, weeks pass. And all of a sudden, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit comes, and the power that resided in singular Jesus now resides in his followers. Starts with 120 people. By the time two messages are preached, we're over, we're over 8,000 followers that we have count of, and it just keeps going after that. Growing and growing and growing and growing and growing and growing and expanding. So when Jesus says, it is better for you for me to leave, Jesus is saying that for me to leave and for my Father to graciously fill you with the Spirit of the living God, there will be multiplication that happens as opposed to addition that has happened. And the growth that the church will see will be exponential. And that's what we see through the book of Acts. We're closing this out today. I'll be honest with you. This made me sad. I feel like this has been a part of me for so long. Maybe you don't feel that way. Maybe you're like, oh, thank God. But John Piper took 13 years to preach through Romans, so just thank God you're not at his church. <clears throat> Acts chapter 28 is where we're going to be today. So turn, if you're in Matthew, go ahead and turn over to Acts. It's 647 in the Bible in front of you, if you're using that one. Today we're going to finish out our look at the story of Paul and see how Jesus' mission through Paul could not be stopped. We're going to close this out. We're then we're going to look at some of Paul's final words. The final words of instruction he gives one of his followers. And we're going to learn how we can be faithful to continue the story as we carry out this unstoppable message and mission of Jesus. You know that... That tensing that Jesus uses, by the way, is an ongoing. It's not one that comes to a close. When he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it, what Jesus is saying is the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Have you ever used the word never and actually were able to carry through with it? I will never eat that again. All right, I'll eat it. I will never do that again. I will never ride that ride again. And then all of a sudden you take your son to an amusement park and he wants to ride it four times in a row. Never is a word that we aren't capable of holding to. It's like the word always. We're not capable of holding to the promise of the word always and the word never. Jesus says that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. Never. And Jesus said that. 
It can be trusted. That's an ongoing promise that we live under. So the story of the book of Acts is how these people believed that promise under duress, under extreme duress. It's an inspiring message. It's why it's given to us for a lot of reasons. But one of the main reasons is to remind us of what we can withstand for the sake of the gospel because the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 647 is the page we're in. We're going to look at the first 10 verses of chapter 28 just to get caught up. Last week we see that they were shipwrecked and swimming. Verse One of chapter 28 starts off this way. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness and they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people, first of all, can things just settle down for Paul for a second? He has to swim across this channel. He gets to land. The people are kind. He can finally take a breath. He's gathering firewood. And because of the heat of the fire, the snakes wake up. And a viper decides that Paul's hand is a good place to take a nap. A viper, by the way. Like one of the most venomous snakes in the world. Should kill him in a matter of minutes. Let's keep reading. When the native people, verse 4, saw the creature hanging from his hand... They said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius. He received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly when we were about to sail. They put on board whatever we needed. Okay. Let's not forget something very major that's happening right now. Paul is in prison. Now, I know we picture like he's chained to a wall or he's, or, or he's in a cell when it says he's in prison. Paul is imprisoned here. He is a political prisoner of the Roman government on his way to see Caesar. And it's just one obstacle after another. And the people on Malta don't care that this is a ship filled with potential prisoners. The people who lived on this island were very friendly. They're very welcoming. Remember, it's probably October whenever this happens, most likely. And so they're cold because they're coming out of the water at that time of year. Rough seas. They're making a fire. Paul's gathering wood gets bit by a a viper. And these people are very superstitious, so they think this guy is, the gods must want him dead. Because he survived the shipwreck, but that was just to give him a false sense of security. The gods, this must be a murderous man, this must be a, a real nasty criminal. 
And so their superstitions and their belief system tell them that, that if vengeance is happening to somebody, if something bad happens to somebody, it's because they deserve it and the gods are throwing down their vengeance on him. He escaped a shipwreck, so they assumed that this god was making sure he got his due punishment. And, they sent him a, and the god sent him a, a different form of death. So as time passes, there's zero negative consequences led to this. And so Paul just shakes this snake off. I don't know what he did. Like, I don't know, I don't know whether he was like, ah, you know, like there's, there's, Luke doesn't give us a very descriptive, but it, like it, Luke almost makes it sound like Paul was like, oh, a snake, get into the fire, you, like he smacks off a mosquito. Like Luke leads us to believe that this is no big deal. I don't know what Paul's uh, reaction was, but all we know is that he has an extremely venomous snake that is dangling off of his hand and he shakes it off and it lands in the fire. And instead of swelling up and dropping dead, which is what they expected of him, where they live, by the way, where they would have known the snakes that lived in their, in their land, they probably would have seen what these snakes did to other people, and that's what they're expecting to happen to Paul. And Paul, they're expecting him to swell up and drop dead. And neither of those things happen. Well, maybe instead of being cursed, he is a god, is what their belief system is. And after that, the local chief comes up, and he welcomes them into his home. And Paul, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is able to bring healing to this man's father. And then all the sick in the area come, and Paul's able to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, see healings brought to these people. So Paul, in the midst of this, you realize, like, he has yet to sit down and be like, come on, God, give me a break. Like he's been shipwrecked. He finally gets to shore, has a glimmer of hope, gets bit by a venomous snake, and then after that goes in and starts use, praying that God is, uses him to bring some healings so that people can see the true message of the gospel through him. Paul legitimately believes the promise of Jesus that was given to Peter and the other followers that was passed on to Paul that the gates of hell will not be able to stop the mission of the church. He believes that in his bones. He lives out of it. Let's pick up where this leaves off in verses 11 through 24. You can look at this. In verse 11, Luke gives us the details about the ship they get on. He talks about each of the cities that they stop in. And they sailed to Syracuse. They sailed to Regium. They sailed to Petulii. They, uh, and, and that's where they, they met some other Christians. And they spent the week with them before they traveled on to Rome. Luke tells us in verse 16 that when they finally arrive in Rome... Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. We see that in verse 16. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So there is a measure of trust that's given to this prisoner of uh, the political prisoner. And Paul's not one to waste time. So three days after he gets to Rome, Paul calls together all the leaders of the Jews to explain his situation. He's giving them an update. That's what you start to see in verse 17. I'm just going to summarize some of this uh, instead of reading through every verse, but I challenge you to read that yourself. And so uh, they, they hadn't received word from Jerusalem that Paul was even going to come to where they were at, so they're not looking to argue with him. They, they don't have any reason to believe that, I'm sorry, I'm super distracted by whatever is flying around the building right now. 
At least it's not a bat, right, Joe? <laughs> so, Paul is, uh, Paul is, is standing amongst these Jews who have not gotten word that, there was, that Paul was coming. He has not gotten word that they haven't gotten word, so they're not there to argue with him. You remember that one of the reasons why he's in the situation he's in is because the Jewish leaders of the day wanted to put him to death. And the only reason that Paul escaped death is because he claimed his Roman citizenship and demanded that he have a trial before Caesar. So the Roman government is protecting him. So in this moment, when Paul gathers all the Jewish leaders together, I think there's an expectation that they would have found him and they would have they would have tried to argue with him and bring those charges back up. But these leaders in Rome hadn't gotten word that Paul was coming. They hadn't gotten word of it. It hadn't made its way to them, apparently. And so uh, they, they had heard about this sect of Jews who believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah, and they wanted to hear more about it. So in verse 23, it tells us, When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. What is Paul doing? He is preaching and he's teaching and he's meeting with these same people who, not not the same exact people, but the same grouping of religious society that was trying to put him to death. And his goal is still to see people come to know who the true Messiah is. His goal is still to see people come to know a real and living Jesus. Verse 24, uh, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Some were convinced, but others disbelieved. It tells us that, that that verse tells us that Paul's faithfulness to God did not merit the response that maybe he hoped for. It's another reminder that the results of gospel living are not up to us. Our job is not to convict sin. Our job is not to save people. Our job is not to fix people. People do not have bullseyes on their back that we target to get them to be better. People are intrinsically loved and created by God. If you're in this room today and you have experienced the saving power of Jesus, the knowledge of the gospel, and it has altered the trajectory of your life, People that haven't gotten the joy of that experience are not projects or targets. That's not how we should view them. We should view them as fellow man, fellow people, people who haven't gotten the joy of experiencing the joy and the, and the bountiful blessing of the grace of Jesus. So we invest in relationships we love people well. We, we come alongside people who don't think like us, who don't talk like us sometimes, who don't, who don't look like us. We, we intentionally step into people's worlds. That's what the whole vision of this church says. We walk with people on the way to where they're going. And when we, when we speak, we speak the name of Jesus and we teach When we teach, we teach how Jesus is the main character in all of Scripture. And when someone meets Jesus for the very first time on the road to Emmaus, if you remember that from Luke 24, they realize they had spent time with Jesus and Jesus is gone from their presence. 
and they illogically get up and run seven miles back to where they just couldn't wait to get out of to tell people that they had just spent time with Jesus. So Paul realizes that his job is to be faithful to the good news of the gospel, to be faithful to be a messenger of the good news of the gospel. The heartbreaking reality is not everyone will believe it. The heartbreaking reality is you might live under the same roof with someone who does not love Jesus. No matter what you say, sometimes it's because of what we say that push people away. It's because of how we say it. And Paul didn't do that. Paul, for the joy set before him in He modeled what Jesus did. Jesus said for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And Paul models that throughout the whole story. Verse 25, it says, And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. Paul quotes Isaiah 6, 9 through 10 to them. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. Paul says, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart was grown, has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Paul quotes to this group of religious educated men and he tells them this is what Isaiah the prophet was talking about. These prophecies that you have memorized and know, they're talking about you. Notice that it says, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. What was the statement that Paul made? Paul's statement was that the prophecy says that you'll be so steeped in your education and you'll be so steeped in what you think you believe. You'll be so steeped and stubborn in that that you won't allow grace to penetrate your heart and you will still be about law. And that's what Isaiah is warning about and he's talking about you. And they left. And Luke writes this in verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It might come across like Luke leaves this book unfinished because he doesn't tell us about Paul's Roman trial. He doesn't tell us the results of it. But I think he left the story like it is to to let us think through and imply that the proclamation of the gospel in the first century was only the beginning of the story that had to continue through us until until the complete kingdom of Christ is fulfilled. He leaves this open-ended because it's now us. It's our job to model this 
to be this. Now, this is the kind of life we're commanded to. This is the kind of life we should be compelled to live. Too many times we hang our hat on that commandment word. I need to do it because I've been commanded to. And there's truth to that. I'm not downplaying that. But the grace and love and mercy of Jesus should compel us to want to give to a watching world what we've been given at all costs. He lived there in Rome for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. If you read through the book of Romans, you will see that Paul had an opportunity to get the gospel entrenched in one of the most influential cities in the known world. So I was wondering, after all this, how do you close out a sermon series on the book of Acts? How do you close out this sermon series that's, that, that, that the book of Acts is obvious primary thing that is being emphasized is how the gospel continues to move forward through the church. God's plan to bring salvation to all of mankind was literally fleshed out through Jesus. And as Jesus returned to heaven, he passed that ministry on to humanity. And at first, his disciples, they led that charge, and they carried out the mission. Particularly, Peter did. Then the torch was passed on to Paul to take the mission even further into people who weren't of a Jewish background called Gentiles. But since the first century, countless thousands of people who were dedicated to God, have been faithful to living out lives of the righteousness of Jesus and connectedness with the lost that allowed them to see God bring salvation to millions of people. And we don't even know most of their names. We don't know anything about them. Which led me to think about this, and I want to ask you this question. Who would you say is most responsible for you coming to know Jesus? Think about that. Now think how many people in this room know that person. That's a very small crowd relatively to the rest of the world, right? The work of the gospel gets started on a hillside when Jesus challenges 120 people that the spirit of the living God will indwell you. You will be given, I will send the helper. And then all of a sudden thousands of people come to know Jesus. And then all of a sudden thousands more and then millions more and then reaches through the generations just the multiple generations representative in this room right now. And there's probably not much crossover in who your person was to the other people in this room. The gospel has been moving for centuries. That is the work of the church. Somewhere along the line, 
You got the gospel fed to you, given to you, taught to you, invested in you by someone who was not hindered by their earthly circumstances. They allowed that to shine through above all other things, and we're called to be that to the rest of humanity. If you're here today and you are sitting in the goodness and grace of Jesus, you are required, you should be compelled to go and give that to the rest of humanity. That's how the church lives out the promise of Jesus that the gates of hell can never stop the offensive of the church. No matter what defensive schemes that the devil can come up with, all of hell can collaborate to try to stop, and that offense always finds a way into the end zone, every time. Sometimes we score ugly. Sometimes we score big. But the church always wins. It led me to want to know what would Paul say in this moment. And I think there's a lot he would say, but there's some things that he actually did say. So I'm going to ask you to turn with me. This is how we're going to close this all out. We're going to look at 2 Timothy. This is is for all intents and purposes the last writing we have of Paul before he's executed. 2 Timothy is on page 688 if you're using the Bible in front of you. We're going to look at chapter 2, but I just want to let you know that the whole letter of 2 Timothy is a letter of charge to young Timothy, a leader of the church in Ephesus, one of the largest churches that Paul was ever a part of planting. And he hands it to this, what some people believe is probably around between an 18 and 21-year-old named Timothy to lead it. That's why he says things to him like, do not let anyone look down on you because of your age. You set the example. He's charging Timothy because he's up against some insurmountable odds. This whole letter is a final charge. It's kind of his last will and testament. We're just going to look at one section of it. and We're going to see him. We're going to pull out uh, five things that I think Paul is saying to Timothy, and then because it's the Word of God inspired and given to us today, he's saying to us. So look at chapter 2. We're just going to look at the first 13 verses. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, The offspring of David has preached in the gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The first thing jumps out at me is kind of trivial. Paul obviously wasn't aware of the Houston Astros whenever he wrote that an athlete's not crowned unless it competes according to the rules. 
Now he probably knows and sees it. Anyway, I see five things in here. Just in this one section, we could spend a month and a half, I think we did already, going through 2 Timothy. But these 13 verses tell us a whole lot. I see five things jump out at me. And the first thing is in the very first verse. It could be easy to miss, but it would be dangerous to miss because Paul tells Timothy to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Well, the verse reads, be strong. But since it's in, the, in more of a passive voice, it literally means this. It means let yourself be strengthened. This kind of strength comes from outside of ourselves. And what that means is if you think you can grit your teeth and go out and live a Christian life on your own power, you're in for a rude awakening. John 15, 5 It says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, let me break that down for just a quick second. It's going to be longer than a second, but let me break it down. Apart from me, you can do nothing. When Jesus indwells us, we have one thing that we are called to do, and that's to be his ambassadors as though God himself were making his appeal to humanity through us. That becomes our purpose. So apart from Jesus, that's not possible. So apart from me, you can do nothing. Be strengthened from with, from, from, in a way that you can't give yourself. Live in that grace. Be strong. You have to abide in Christ. You have to grow in your understanding. You have to grow in your imitation of who he is. I hope I don't embarrass him, but if you've never heard Andrew do some of his impressions, you need to. They're really good. They're spot on, like so good. But I love impressions. I tend to imitate pretty much everything. I've told Megan this before. I sing, but I don't know what I actually sound like because I just copy whatever I've heard before. So if I'm singing a song from Frozen, which is my jam lately, uh, (laughs) thank you to a sweet little girl who has me just... All the time. It's just rattling. Frozen two songs just all the time, right? I, I find myself instinctively trying to sound like the guy from the movie. I honestly don't know how I would sing that song. I just know he does it, so that's what I try to sound like. So when I hear that, be an imitator of God, I should look at God's character, I should hear his voice, and I should get to the point where I don't even know what I sound like anymore. I don't even know what I live like anymore. Because I have worked so diligently at imitating Jesus. The only way that's possible is by abiding in him, walking with him, letting him absorb the person that you think you were to begin with. As you desire to join in Christ's work, you get busy doing great stuff for God. But you have to start off by recognizing that you and I have a foundational core need to know him personally and intimately so that he can have his way in and through us. Paul's charging Timothy right out of the gate. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Apart from Jesus, Timothy, you can do nothing. Second thing Paul gives to uh, intentionally pass on your faith to others. 
You also be responsible to be faithful enough to pass it on. In verse 2, it says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The things you have heard from me, the, heard, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men. Paul's not telling Timothy to to uh, make disciples, but he's telling him, he's not only telling Timothy to make disciples, he's telling him to be discerning in how he does it. He's telling him to, that there are people you can spend a lot of time, you can, there are people you can spend a lot of time with that ultimately just want to hang out. There are people you can spend a lot of time with and ultimately what they want to do is just spend time together. They just want to talk. But Paul's giving Timothy advice that when you invest the gospel in people, when you make disciples, entrust it to faithful men who are going to actually do the work of the gospel, not just talk about it. That takes intentional relationships. That takes intentional work. That takes intentional obedience. That's the hard work of the gospel is relationship building. It's not easy work but it's what we're called to. Paul's reminding Timothy of that. There are a lot of people that will want to sit and talk about this stuff, but only spend the inordinate amount of time that, you ha- that you're given to people who you can entrust with this faithful message. He, Paul's saying, Timothy, I entrusted you with this message because I believe you'll do something with it. The third thing that Paul gives Timothy is to endure hardship. We all know that's going to happen, right? We all know that we will have hard times. Hardships will come. Hardships don't end when you become a Christian. Actually, they might get amped up. Jesus said, follow me, and he was headed to death. You realize that? You ever thought about that? When he looked at the disciples, the purpose of Jesus' life was to die. And he looked at the disciples and he said, follow me on my way to death. Telling other people about Jesus isn't necessarily easy work, but it's too important to neglect. It's eternally important. Did Paul have to endure hardship? Yeah, absolutely. He did lots of it. Do you remember how Luke ended this? In the book of Acts, boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you and I, we've studied through that whole book together. We've, we've looked at every chapter of the book of Acts. We didn't skip one of them. We looked through all of it. Was Paul's ministry in any part of it without hindrance? No, at every turn. At every turn, from the very beginning to the very end of his ministry, in in Acts, what we see at least, there's not one iota of his ministry that didn't have some kind of hindrance to it. Not one. So how did he do that? By remembering Jesus. When you face tough times, when you face rejection, when you face harassment for your faith, when you face trials and hindrances and things that are trying to slow down the gospel, remember what Jesus was willing to go through for you. Recalibrate your mind around what Jesus did for you. 
My friend Daryl's really good at reminding us to continually preach the gospel to ourselves and then preaching it to one another, reminding us that Jesus is the main character. When I hit a trial, when I get tripped up, it's, it's the best and most effective way to recalibrate is to stop and consider what Jesus did on my behalf. You might be facing some tough times, but you haven't died yet. To remember that Jesus and his sacrificial love will carry on. In Hebrews 12, verses 3 and 4, it says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The author of Hebrews says, Remember Jesus. And when you hit hard times, remember that if you're still breathing, if you haven't shed blood for your faith, you have not gone as far as Jesus. And even if you die, you didn't go as far as Jesus. Remember, consider him. Consider Jesus. He's telling Timothy, remember Jesus in verse 8. He says, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Paul gives Timothy this one last thing in this section. He, he, he instructs him that, to, that uh, in verses 10 through 13, he tells him to live with an eternal view. Paul says that because of what Jesus has done for him, because eternity hangs in the balance for the souls of the people around him, he's willing to endure everything for the sake of the salvation of others. He tells Timothy this. He says, if... We have died with him. We also will live with him. If we endure, we also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He will not thus disown us, for he cannot deny himself. Now, that doesn't mean you can lose your salvation. I want to make that clear. That verse does not support that you can lose your salvation. But what it does say is if you're not carrying out the mission of Jesus, you may be fooling yourself about whether or not you've been truly given control of your life to Him. If your heartbeat doesn't beat for the gospel, if this message of Jesus hasn't changed your life, hasn't changed your priorities, if it's not shaping and molding you, I'm not saying you lost anything. I'm saying you have to consider whether you had it in the first place. We've made believing in Jesus too easy in our culture. We talked about that a few weeks ago. All you have to do to be a Christian is raise your hand with everyone's eyes closed so nobody knows you did it. You pray a silent prayer. You don't have to tell anybody that you did it. You can leave. We can brag about that number. And you don't have to change your life at all. There are people that have come to know Jesus in a very real way with that being their story. So it's not like it's not effective. But when we let people believe that following Jesus is that easy and that's all that's required of us, we do them a disservice because we're not actually making disciples. We're just pointing people to good news and then leaving it at that. And what Paul says to Timothy is don't just do that. Entrust this message to faithful men who will carry it on. See, Paul's life made a compelling case for the gospel. I find myself praying over and over again that the book of Acts inspires us to stay the course as we move the gospel forward in a world that is getting increasingly hostile towards good news. 
towards sound doctrine. That we would stay the course, that we would have boldness, that we would have courage as we trust God. I think the timing of this is perfect. You know that this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, which starts the Lent. Now, the main purpose of Lent is to prepare ourselves for Easter, prepare ourselves for the message of, a, of an eternal state that we can live in in communion with Christ. So that we're going to take the next few weeks and we're going to actually preach through Lent. We're going to prepare ourselves and prepare our hearts for Easter. And I think that it's, it's great how God timed this out. I say that because I'm not that good of a planner to end this act series right before we go into a season where, where culturally we can set aside something we even fast from to get our minds focused on the King, to get our minds focused on Jesus, to prepare our hearts for the beautiful message of Easter. And that's what we want to do over the next few weeks. We don't want to leave this behind us. We want to keep it in front of us and continue moving forward with the gospel. That's what Paul did. That's what he required That's what was required of him through Jesus. That's who we want to be. When we look at God, when we hear the commands, when we see that there's a lost world in desperate need of good news and hope that only comes through Jesus, and we've been given it, church. And we will look at God and we will say, regardless of how difficult our circumstances may be, when it comes to the command of living out and furthering the gospel, we will say, yes, I will. God, thank you that you that you, you want us to do this work. You've tilled the soil of our hearts to prepare us for it, that you continue to do that, that you give us this amazing gift of the local church that we can gather and be equipped and invest in one another, that we can support one another, that we can have relationship with one another and walk through this and be this. So may you find us faithful to this and may the work that is being done here on earth, to further the gospel will be work that we have a joy in being a part of. Lord, may we be the church, may we be people who say, yes, yes, I will.